You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Parables of Jesus, a look at the stories Jesus told and what they mean for us today. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. If you read the Bible on your phone, uh, we encourage you to use the Version Bible app. If you go in the menu and all these things, you can find the events section, and then you can follow along with these notes, and actually even a little bit more that's in that uh, app for you to follow along. We're currently in a s- series in which we are studying the parables that Jesus told. You know, one-third of all the teaching in the Bible that Jesus uh, did that's recorded for us is in the form of parables, which are short stories and illustrations which Jesus used to teach important spiritual truths. So each week in the series, we're looking at one or two of these parables and we're considering what they meant for those people at that time and what they mean for us today and how we live today. So let's begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse, uh, chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made you five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also he said to the one... uh, He had the two talents came forward and said, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering what you do not scatter. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap what I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received that which was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we, we know that it has a message for us today. We pray that as we consider it, as we break it down, as we think about it, Lord, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts by your Holy Spirit to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. Lord, we want to be people who don't just hear your word and read it. We want to be people who put it into practice in our lives. And we pray, Lord, your word would have that transforming effect in our lives as we study it today. Lord, thank you for your promise that when your word goes out, it never comes back void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it out. And so, Lord, we ask that your purpose would be accomplished in our hearts and our minds and our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have been watching the NBA Finals? Anybody? Anybody think Cleveland's got any chance? Me neither. 
All right, but anyway, uh, I, I was thinking about basketball this week because of the finals. And I was thinking about, uh, I want to tell you a little, some statistics. I like statistics. I hope you do too. Uh, how many of you remember Kobe Bryant, right? So Kobe Bryant, one of the all-time, you know, whether you, you think he was great or not, he was, he played for 20 years, one of the all-time, like, legends of the NBA. Now, Kobe retired a few years ago, but before he retired, he set a record, an NBA record. He holds at least one NBA record. And do you know what that record is that Kobe holds? Most missed shots by any player ever. He has missed more shots than anyone else who ever played in the NBA in history. Kobe set this record in 2014 with his 13,148th missed shot. And before his career ended, he would go on to miss 600 more, which puts him almost 1,500 missed shots ahead of the next person in line. Another player that he passed on the way, who also is close to him and having almost as many missed shots, is Michael Jordan. And yet Kobe and Michael are only two out of five players in NBA history to ever score more than 30,000 points. The other players... Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Carl Malone, and Wilt Chamberlain. Consequently, Carl Malone and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar hold the number four and five positions for missed shots ever. And see, Kobe had a shooting percentage of 43%, which means that most of the time, more often than not, when Kobe put the ball up, he missed. Michael Jordan once did an interview, and in this interview, here's what he said. He said, I have missed 9,000 shots. This is before the end of his career. He, he missed more than that by the end. But at this point in his career, he said, I've missed over 9,000 shots. I have lost over 300, or I've lost almost 300 games. I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed 26 times. And he said, I have failed. In my life, I have failed over and over and over again. And that is the secret to my success. You see, if you never attempt anything, you will never fail. But if you play it safe, you will never accomplish anything either, and you'll never succeed. You won't succeed in basketball, and the same is true in life. You won't succeed in life if you play it safe and you never do anything. But you'll never fail. See, it's a trade-off. The title of today's message is, It's Dangerous to Play It Safe. For us in our lives, the question that we have to ask, one of these big meta questions that everyone needs to ask and everyone does ask, but we need to answer it, and the way we answer it will very much shape how we live, and that question is this, what does it mean to succeed in life? What is success in life? At the end of our life, how will you know that your life was successful? What does it mean to have a successful life? That is actually the question that Jesus is addressing in our text today, believe it or not. What does it mean to succeed at life? If you, I think if you would ask people that question, you'd get a lot of answers, and it'd probably be a lot of the answers that you would expect to get. So for example, you'd probably get some people who said, well, success in life means being a decent person. If you are a decent person, you have succeeded at life. Other people might say, you know, all that matters in life, success in life is gauged by happiness. If you're happy, that's success. Somebody else might say, a successful life means that you left the world a little bit better than you found it. It means making a positive impact that it lasts beyond your life. But really, the more you think about those answers, I got to tell you, the more you think about those answers, the more you realize that they break down, that all of those answers are actually insufficient as a gauge for what makes a life successful. Let me explain to you why. For example, if you say to have a successful life, to be successful in life means be a decent person. Okay, fine, but who decides 
what it means to be a decent person, right? Like your definition of what a decent person is might be different than somebody else's definition of what a decent person is. And maybe someone else who thinks they're a decent person and does decent things, you would look at that and say, no, those things aren't, aren't good or decent at all. So it's totally subjective. So that can't be our, our reasoning for what makes a life successful. Another, another person might say, you know, success in life means being happy. As long as you're happy, that's success. Okay, but that, that doesn't work either because some people do things that make them happy which hurt other people. And that's not success in life either. For example, if a, a husband walks out on his wife and kids to go be with another woman because that makes him happy. Okay, well that makes him happy but he, he leaves uh, lasting scars, lifelong trauma on the wife and the kids. And so, in other words, there are some people who do things that make them happy, but those things that make them happy actually hurt other people. So that can't be our gauge for what a successful life is by itself. How about, okay, leaving the world a better place than you found it, making a positive impact? Well, I think that is a great ambition and a noble cause. In fact, I think that all of us should strive towards that end. We should try to leave the world a better place. But again, this also by itself is insufficient as a measure of what it means to have a successful life. Because if you look at the statistics, here's the deal. Just by being alive, you are having a negative impact on the world for generations to come, right? Like you are leaving a carbon footprint, you're consuming clean water, you are generating waste, you are generating pollution, you are negatively impacting the environment just by being alive and eating food and living somewhere. So if our only measure of, okay, what makes a life successful is to leave the world a better place, well then the most successful life would be if you weren't here at all, right? So that can't be the gauge of what makes a life successful. There, there must be some other way, some way to gauge to determine what it means to live a successful life. And here's the good news for you today. Jesus actually gives us the answer to that question in our text today. And I'm going to show you what that is. And the way that he goes about doing it is by telling a story. He tells a story, and it's a parable. This parable is actually found in two places in the Gospels. It's found here in Matthew 25, which is the one we just read where it's called the parable of the talents. By the way, talent there is not talent in the sense of a talent show, right? Like I'm, being, I'm talented at art or music or sports. It's, talent is a unit of money. It's a measurement of money. Uh, the other place it's found is in Luke 19, where it's called the parable of the minas. A mina is also a unit of money, but it's a, it's a, it has a different value. Now, these are the same parable but there are some significant differences between the parable in Matthew's gospel and the parable as is found in Luke's gospel. But both of the parables have the same basic elements and they teach the same principles. But let me show you what some of those differences are and let me explain to you why those differences exist between the two gospels. But first I want to just point out the similarities. In both versions of this story you have a man who goes away and leaves his possessions in the charge of his servants. And when he returns, he asks the servants to give an account of what they did with what he gave them while he was away. In both of these versions of this parable, two servants are commended for being good and faithful stewards of the master's property, and a third servant is rebuked for not doing anything with what he was given. Rather than being called good and faithful, that third servant is called wicked and lazy. Now, let me point out to you the differences. In Matthew's gospel, the parable is about a man who goes away on a journey and comes back. In Luke's gospel, the parable is about a nobleman who goes away to receive a kingdom in order to be 
to be crowned king, and then he returns as king. In Matthew's gospel, the servants are given talents, whereas in Luke's gospel, they are given minas. Now, uh, both of these are monetary units. They're units of money, but they're very different in their amount, right? So a talent was worth about 20 years' wages for a, a physical laborer. A mina, on the other hand, was about uh, three months' wages for a physical laborer. So to put that in today's terms, we might think in the, these, these numbers. A mina is about uh, $8,000, and a talent is worth about $60,000. Another difference is that, um, or I'm sorry, actually that'd be $600,000. That was my calculation. So that's a lot more money, $600,000. Another difference is that in Luke's gospel, each of the servants is given the same amount of money. He gives 10 people the same amount of money. Everybody's given one mina. But in Matthew's Gospel, in that account of the story, the servants are given different amounts of money, uh, and it says they're given them according to their ability. So one is given five talents, another one's given two talents, and then there's one who's given one talent. But maybe the biggest difference between these parables in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel is that in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells this parable when he is in Jericho on his way to Jerusalem on that fateful trip at the end of which he's going to be crucified. He tells it when he's in Jericho about to go to Jerusalem. Whereas in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells this parable on that same trip, but after he is already in Jerusalem. So the timeline is different between when this parable is spoken. Also in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells this parable to a large crowd of people. Maybe you remember a guy named Zacchaeus who was vertically challenged. And uh, he climbed up in a tree to, to see Jesus because he couldn't see over the crowd. That is the same instance. Zacchaeus is up in the tree and Jesus tells this parable. That's, there's a big crowd there in Luke 19 where Jesus tells this parable. But in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 25, where Jesus tells the same parable, the, he says it to only his disciples who are having a private meeting. Here's what it says in Luke 19. It says, He proceeded to tell them this parable because he was near to Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So in Luke 19, the point of this parable, the point he's making with it, is to tell the people that things aren't going to happen in the way or in the timing that they're expecting them to happen. Jesus will come and, and bring the kingdom that they're expecting, but it's not going to be immediately. He's going to go away and then he's going to come back, and, and so he says, I want you to be ready. But he says, here's what I expect you to do in the meantime. Okay, now in Matthew's gospel, the scene is different. It's several days after what we read about in Luke's gospel. Jesus is already in Jerusalem, and he's with his disciples. They're on the Mount of Olives, which is a hill in the city of Jerusalem that's opposite the Temple Mount. And so they're standing on this hill, and it says that the disciples were pointing out to Jesus, and they're saying, look at the temple, basically saying, look, isn't that just a beautiful, amazing building? And Jesus says, do you know that before it's all said and done, not one stone will be left standing of that temple? The whole thing's gonna be destroyed. And then he goes on, and, and he tells them, uh, some things. They say, what's going to happen? Tell us about your coming and about the end of the age. And so Jesus sits down with his disciples. It's called the Olivet Discourse. He sits down with them on the Mount of Olives and he starts to tell them about what's going to happen in the future and, and how it's all going to end and how he's going to come back and what's going to happen at what he calls the end of the age. And he says, no one except the Father knows when I'm going to return. Not even me. I don't even know. And he says, but so because, you, because no one knows the time of my coming, my return, therefore you should live in a constant state of readiness. 
Well, that's all well and good, but the question is, what does it mean to be ready, right? What does it mean to be ready for Jesus' coming? Does it mean you just stand around and say, okay, so uh, I'm ready. Here we go. Anytime now. You just do that. Is that what it means to be ready? No, Jesus says, okay, here's what it means to be ready. To be ready, it's right here in this parable. This is what it means to be ready, and we're going to talk about what that is in just a second. Now, so here's the deal. If this is the same parable, the question is, why are, all there, why are there all these differences between how Matthew tells that it happened and how Luke tells that it happened? And, and, you know, people might look at this and say, well, does this mean that the biblical writers are giving us conflicting accounts of Jesus' life or the timeline of Jesus' life? Is one of these accounts accurate and the other one is not? There's actually a very simple answer to this question and, and I think it's one that any preacher would automatically realize, but someone who, who might not be a preacher, maybe you don't realize it right away. Here's the deal. It's this simple. Jesus repeated his parables sometimes. He repeated them when he talked to different crowds in different places at different times. It's kind of like me. If you hang out with me long enough, you're just going to start hearing the same stories because I've only got a couple stories. And they're not, and they're not even that great. They're not as good as Jesus' stories. Like sometimes I've been, I, I get invited to speak at like a conference or an event or another church and I'll bring people from church here with me and they're usually super disappointed because they're like, yeah, yeah, I heard you say all those things before, right? Because I... I yeah, that's what preachers do. Talking to a different crowd of people at a different time. They haven't heard it before. And so you've got some good material that God gave you and you give it to them, give it to this crowd too. And so what we have here is simply this. Matthew and Luke are each telling us about different occasions when Jesus used the same illustration for a different crowd, different place, different people, and with a little variation. Okay? So the core message of the parable is the same in both instances. There are three key elements to it that we must see which apply to our lives today just as much as they did to anybody back then. And here are the three elements. First of all, we have the prerequisite, then we have the calling, and then we have the warning. So the prerequisite, the calling, and the warning. So let's look at the prerequisite. Here's the prerequisite. Is he your king? That's the prerequisite. Is he your king? You know, it's particularly interesting about how Jesus tells this parable in Luke's gospel is that this is the only instance that at least I know of where Jesus alludes in his parable to an actual historical event that took place uh, some years before this. So about 20 years before this moment when Jesus tells this parable, um, there was a, an event that he's actually kind of alluding to or referring to. So you, you might remember that when Jesus was born, the ruler of Israel at that time was a guy named Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the guy who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby because he was, you know, threatened that someone was born king of the Jews. And so Jesus and his family became refugees. They actually had to flee to Egypt and they returned only after Herod the Great died. But here's what happened on Herod's side. He had a couple kids and he had a, he had a brother and some family members and they all wanted to inherit his kingdom. But he didn't trust any of them to inherit the kingdom. So what he did is, before he died, he divided up the kingdom into four parts and he put his family members in charge of these four parts. So none of them had full reign over the kingdom. Now, one of his sons was a man named Archelaus. And Archelaus didn't like it at all that he didn't inherit the entire kingdom of his father. And so what Archelaus did is he took a trip up to Rome and he spoke to the Caesar and he asked the Caesar to give him the kingdom, the entire kingdom. Now, Archelaus was such a bad guy that the Jews of that region sent a delegation to Rome to protest, basically, and to protest outside of Caesar's palace and say, no, we do not want this guy to rule over us. And ultimately, 
the Jewish people won the day and Archelaus was not named king over the uh, entire kingdom of Israel. But in Luke 19, here's what it says. See the correlation here. Jesus told them a parable because he was going near to Jerusalem and the people supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So Jesus is saying, let me explain this to you. You guys remember a few years ago when uh, Archelaus went up to Rome and he asked Caesar to give him the kingdom? And remember how there were people who protested that? They didn't like Archelaus. They didn't want him to be king. Well, that's kind of like me, actually. I'm going to do something very similar to that. I'm going to go away on a journey, if you will. But unlike Archelaus, who, who didn't become king, when I return, I will return as king. So it's very important for you to decide, where do you stand? Where do you stand in regard to me being king? For those of you who recognize me as your king, you will be happy to see that day when I return in power. But for those who say, he's not my king, or who say, I won't have this man rule over me, for them, his coming will be a day of judgment. Let me say this, did you know that you, no matter who you are, you are going to stand before God and give account one day? You will stand before God and give account one day. Here's what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But here's the thing you need to know. There are actually going to be two different judgments and there are going to be two different kinds of judgments. So there are going to be two different judgment seats, and there are going to be two different judgments. Right after the parable of the talents that we have here in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus goes on to say what's going to happen at the very end. He says, when he returns, he will judge all the nations, the living and the dead, we say, right? So all the people who have ever lived, ever. And he says that he is going to separate them into two groups, like a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And the one group will be on his right, the other group will be on his left. And he says that on the one side, there will be those who received him as king, as their Lord, as their savior. On the other side will be those who rejected him and said, I will not have this man rule over me. And those two groups will be judged separately. But here's the other thing you need to know. They'll also be judged differently. So the one group who rejected Jesus, they will be judged according to their sins. Whereas the other group who embraced Jesus, they will not be judged according to their sins. Why? Because Jesus on the cross was already judged for their sins. Their sins have been dealt with on the cross. They stand forgiven and redeemed. So this is what the Bible says. It says there is no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus took your place. He was condemned on your behalf so that you could be saved, so that you could have life. That's the good news of the gospel. To be a Christian is to trust in that and cling to it and hope in that. And so what will the judgment be for those who have received Jesus and embraced what he did on the cross? Now, they will not be judged to condemnation. They will be judged unto a reward. Okay, so that's what's actually being talked about here in this parable in Matthew 25 and in Luke 19. This judgment unto a reward. Now, you can think about it this way. There's a difference between standing before a judge in a courtroom and standing before a judge at a sporting event, isn't there, right? So the judge in a courtroom hands out sentences, but a judge in a sporting event hands out rewards or awards. So a judge in a courtroom, think about this, they, they don't award you 
for good things you've done, right? Like when you go into traffic court because you were going 70 and a 30, right? And then you say, well, b- let me tell you about some of the good things I've done recently. I gave a big donation to the Goodwill. And he says, well, I don't care. That's not why we're here today, right? Like I'm not here to award you and pat you on the back for the good things you've done. I'm here to deal with the bad things, the wrong things you've done. On the other hand, a judge in a sporting event, if you mess up, they're not going to send you to jail. But if you do well, they're going to reward you for it. They're going to award you for it. So that's the difference between the two judgments that will be experienced by these two groups of people. The one group who rejected Jesus as king, they will stand before God like a judge in a courtroom. The other group who embraced Jesus as king, they will stand before God like a judge at a sporting event for a reward. And this is what's being described to us here in this parable. So here's the prerequisite. In order for this parable to apply to you, he must be your king. That's the prerequisite. Because this parable is about what? It's about what the servants of the master did with the master's stuff that he entrusted to them. And when he came back, he asked them to give an account of what they did with what he had given them. And then he rewarded them accordingly. So the first question we have to ask before we can go any further is this. Is he your king? Is he your king? If he is your king, what does that mean? It means that he's your ultimate authority in your life. It means that no longer are you yourself the ultimate authority in your life. It means that he is the one who sets the course and the direction and the expectations. Now some of you might say, you know, I really don't like that language of servant and master. It just seems so degrading and servile. And uh, a lot of people would prefer to think of God as, as a friend or someone who gives good advice or who pulls some strings for you when you're in a bind or, or who can help you get something you really want. And here's the thing. God does say, I am all those things. I will be a friend to you, a closer friend, a counselor, a companion like no one else. I will hear your prayers and I will answer them. But it's kind of like what I tell my kids. You know, my kids, they say, hey, can we be friends, Dad? And I say, well, yeah. We can be friends, but, but I'm your dad first. And I'll always be your dad first. And that has to come first. It has to be the primary relationship. If that relationship is intact, if that respect is in place, then we can be friends too. But if it's not, then we gotta step, take a step back and go back to this relationship. I'll always be your dad first, and then I'll be your friend second. And it works that way with God too. I, I, God would say, I'll be your friend, I'll be your companion, I'll be your counselor, I'll be everything that you possibly need. But first... I have to be your king. That's the first. That's the prerequisite for everything else. So let me ask you this question. And it really, it is the most important question in the world. It determines your destiny. And it's the prerequisite for everything else. The question is this, is he your king? You know, the good news of the gospel is this, that that king, the great king, left his heavenly throne to come on a mission to seek and to save you because he loves you and cares about you. He became one of us. So that as one of us, he might take our place in judgment so that we might be saved, so we might be justified. That's when he puts his stamp on us and says, you are made right with God. And he did that for you. It's his gift to you. It's not something you earn. It's not something you work for. It's not something you deserve or merit. He gives it to you freely as a gift. If you embrace him and his kingship, then you will not be judged unto condemnation because he was already condemned on your behalf. Instead, you will be judged unto a a reward, which is what we're talking about here in this parable. So the prerequisite is, is he your king? Now let's talk about our second point, which is this, the calling. The calling is this, to be a good and faithful steward 
of what he's given you. In Luke's version of this parable, this is how it reads. It says in Luke 19, verse 13, the master called 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 minas and he said to them, engage in business until I come. I think it's interesting. He says, engage in business until I come. So what he's calling them to be is stewards. A steward is someone who has been entrusted with managing someone else's property. In today's terms, we might uh, think of this as a financial manager or an estate manager might be the best way to think about it. It's someone who's been given power of attorney so they can make decisions and investments and act on behalf of the owner of the property. And yet, they can't just do whatever they want with that money or that property because it's not theirs at the end of the day. Their job is to manage those resources and to do it in two important ways. Number one, manage them according to the will and desires of the owner. And number two, to manage them for the profit of the owner. So to, according to the will and desires of the owner and for the profit of the owner. And this, Jesus says, he says, this is a picture of your life. He says, God has given you certain things. He's given you time, talents, abilities. He's given you money and material possessions. He's given you a mind and a body. He's given you some degree of influence over other people. And the question is this, what are you doing with what he has given you? Are you being a good and faithful steward of those things? Are you using those things according to his will and desire? Are you using them for his profit? The master in this story tells these stewards, he says, Look, when I leave, I don't want you to just sit around and wait for me to come back, right? I want you to engage in business. I want you to be entrepreneurial with what I've given you. I want you to take these resources that I've given you and I want you to use them and put them to work to do my work until I return. You know, I asked a question earlier at the beginning. What does it mean to live a successful life? What is the measure? How do we determine what is a successful life? And here's what Jesus tells us. Success in life is determined by being a good and faithful steward of what God has entrusted to you. So success in life is determined and defined by being a good and faithful steward of what God has entrusted to you. That means using what he's given you to do his work. And so when the master returns, it says that he ordered these servants to whom he had given this money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So first servant comes in. What did you do with what I gave you? He says, well, I took what you gave me and I invested it and here are the profits. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Next one comes in. What did you do with what I gave you? Also, same thing. I took what you gave me. I invested. I used it. And here are the profits. Same thing, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Now I want you to notice this. The master wasn't primarily concerned with how much they brought in, how much they gained. The primary concern was whether or not they had used what was given to them well and faithfully. For example, in the, in the parable of the minas, right? Everybody's given the same amount of money. One guy turns it into 10 minas. Another guy turns it into five. He doesn't commend the one more than the other. He says, good, I'm glad that you used what I gave you and you were faithful with it. And, and that's what is important to him. So I wanted to ask you this. What about you? What has God given you? What are the resources that he has entrusted to you? And are you being a good steward of them? Are you being faithful with those things? Are you using what he has entrusted to you well and faithfully according to his will and his desires and for his profit. 
And that brings us to our third point, which is the warning. And the warning is this. Don't play it safe. Don't play it safe. When the third servant is called in, the master asks him, what did you do with what I gave you? And the man says, I didn't do anything. I uh, wrapped it up nicely and I hid it away so it wouldn't get lost. And the master says, great. No, not at all. He doesn't say great. He says, what? Like he's very unhappy to hear this. He says, I told you to take what I had given you and, and to do business until I came back with it. Why did you do nothing? Why didn't you even just put it in the bank? It could have gotten, you know, 0.4% interest, right? He says, I, I told you to do business with it and you did nothing. Well, why would you do nothing? And the man gives two excuses. I want, to, I want to show you what these are because they're actually really interesting. The first excuse is this. He says, well, I know what kind of man you are. You collect what you do not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. You collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Now think about what this guy is saying. If somebody can do those things, reap what they don't sow, collect what they don't deposit, that's a powerful person. That's a person who has a lot of authority. You might even go so far as to say, what we might say in theological terms, he is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need any help from some small person like this man. Essentially what this man is saying is this. Well, I know how powerful you are, and I figured, you don't need my help, right? Well, who am I? So I just figured, I don't need to do anything. Now, how many of you have ever had this thought before where you thought, wait a second, okay, so if God is sovereign, then he doesn't really need me to do anything. I mean, really, right? So I won't, right? Like, I won't give, I won't go, I won't speak, I won't inconvenience myself because, hey, God is sovereign. If he wants to get something done, he can get it done. He doesn't need me. And Some people, and here's the point of this first excuse, some people use the sovereignty of God as an excuse for complacency and for inactivity. That's what this guy's doing. And the master goes so far as to call this attitude wicked. God is telling us, I don't want you to think that way. I may be sovereign, but I don't want you to think that way. And the next excuse the man gives is this. He says, well, the other reason I didn't do anything is because I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to lose what you had given me. And I figured if I did something like that, you would be really angry with me. And the master says, no, this is what makes me angry, that you didn't use what I gave you. See, the principle here for me and you is this. God wants us to use what he has given us. God wants us to be conduits, not reservoirs. Well, you might ask, well, what if, I, what if I did step out and I used the thing that God gave me and I failed and I lost it and I messed it up, right? Like, what if I step out and then I try to do something and it doesn't work and it fails? What if I start a Bible study at work and nobody shows up? What if I try to talk to this person about Jesus and I say all the wrong things and I totally mess it up and now they dislike Jesus even more than they did before? What if I step out in faith and it doesn't work? Wouldn't it have been better to just not do that at all? rather than to do it, try it, and fail. You know, one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 14, verse 4. And here's what it says. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. And you're like, why is that your favorite proverb? Let me explain. If you don't have any animals, then you'll never have to clean up after those animals. You're going to have clean stalls. It's going to be sterile, very sterile. Like you could eat off the floor sterile. You won't have any bad smells you never have any, anything to clean up. No messes. But if you never have any animals, then nothing of significance will ever get accomplished on the farm. 
It's a trade-off. If you never do anything, you'll never fail. It's like basketball, right? You never take a shot, you'll never miss. But if you never take a shot, you'll never succeed either. You'll never do anything. It's a trade-off. God's telling us, I, I, I don't want you to play it safe. I've given you everything you have, and I want you to use it. I want you to be entrepreneurial with what I've given you. I want you to invest it and use it for my profit and for expanding my kingdom. And I'd rather have you try and fail than to play it safe and just do nothing because you're afraid of messing up or because you'd rather just not bother. You know, one of my heroes is a man named William Carey. William Carey is known as the father of the modern missionary movement. Around the year 1800, he was working as a shoe repairman in England. And he became burdened thinking about the continent of India and thinking, wow, there's a lot of people who live in India and who is going to go to India and tell those people about Jesus? And so he approached his church about it and he said, I think God's calling me to go to India. He wasn't looking for money, actually. He just wanted them to support what he was doing and he wanted them to pray about it and stuff. But you know what they did when he told them, I want to go to India as a missionary? They laughed him out of the room. And they said, who do you think you are? that you're going to go to India and do something big for God. If God wants to save those people, he doesn't need you to do it. So William, of course, was discouraged by that. Who wouldn't be? But the good thing is he didn't give up. He was so convinced that God had called him to go to India, they started looking for a job in India. And he actually found one. There's a British India company was running all the factories in India. So he got a job with the British India company uh, as a foreman in a factory in India. And he loaded his family on the boat somewhat reluctantly, and they moved down there. But before he went to India, he wrote a short booklet, which kind of outlined his thoughts and him reading the Bible and saying, okay, well, this is what the Bible says about how God is calling us to step out in faith and be his witnesses to all nations, even to the ends of the earth. And he wrote this phrase. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. William Carey went to India expecting great things from God and attempting great things for God. And you know what he experienced? Well, it was a lot of failure, right? When he wasn't working, he would go out and he would try to learn the language and he would try to talk to people about Jesus. In the evenings, he translated the Bible by candlelight into several different languages as he was learning them. And time went by, years went by actually, and it seemed that his ministry there had absolutely no effect. For seven years, he was there working tirelessly and no one became a Christian through his ministry there. And it turned out that those Bibles that he'd been working on for years by candlelight every night after work, staying up late, for years translating word for word best as he could, when he finally gave them to someone to read them, they said, it's completely unintelligible. Like this makes, this means nothing. He stepped out and he attempted something and yet it seemed like a complete failure. But in the seventh year, finally, one Indian person became a Christian and was baptized. In the decades that followed, because he stayed there, another 150 or so people became, Indian people became Christians through his ministry, and a church was formed that, that continued on after that. But even beyond that, William Carey inspired an entire movement of missionaries who truly did go out and change the world. And this was their rallying cry. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I love this quote from John A. Shedd. He said, a ship in harbor is safe. But that's not what ships are built for, is it? So a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. Ships aren't built to sit in the harbor. Ships are built to go out on the open sea. They're not built to just sit there in safety. And the same is true of your life. 
You know that? You can play it safe. You can never take any risks. You can never step out and do anything that requires real faith. You can never do anything that stretches you, anything that's radical and requires you to really trust in God. You can play it safe, but that's not what you were made for. That's not what you were made for. You were made to bring glory to God. You were made to be used by God to do his work in the world by using the resources that he's given you. Don't miss out on that because you're too afraid of of being stretched or challenged or because you're afraid that you might fail. A few years ago, I read this quote from a pastor named Francis Chan. He was talking about how in America, culturally, we have this obsession with safety and security. And, And he says it's a lot of times we bring this into our Christianity and we look to God primarily to keep us safe and to protect us from bad things happening to us. And he says, if you listen to how we pray a lot of times, it's reflected in that. It's a lot of prayers. Keep us safe. Don't let anybody get hurt. Please don't let that happen. And here's what he says. He says, we are consumed by safety. We are obsessed with it, actually. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for God's protection, but I am questioning how we've made safety our highest priority. We've elevated safety to the neglect of whatever would bring God the most glory or whatever would accomplish his purposes in our lives and in the world. And he challenges us to ask this question. What would it look like in my life if I was more obsessed with bringing God glory and expanding his kingdom than I am with my own personal safety and comfort? You see, that is what Jesus did for us. He laid aside his comfort. He laid aside his safety for us, out of love, in order to redeem us. And my prayer for you is that that act, that love of God for you, would be that which motivates you to live your life, not playing it safe, but with full abandon for his glory and for his purposes. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for your love that was willing to give up your safety, your security, Lord, for our sakes, to save us. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who, on that first point, they would say, you know what, that's me. I, I, I don't know if God is my king, but I know that he should be. I pray for anybody here today who says, okay, today's the day when I need to take that step and say, Lord, I, I ask you to sit on the throne of my life. I'll get down from that throne. I ask you to sit on it. I ask you to be my savior and to be my Lord. And I, I give you that place in my life to be the one who leads me and sets the course in the direction and I follow you. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who hasn't yet done that, that today, right now, they would, they would do that and say that in their heart. Yes, Lord, you be my king. Lord, I pray for us and I thank you for the things that you've given us, but Lord, help us to remember that we're stewards of those things and help us to use everything that you've given us according to your will and your desires and for your profit. Lord, let us not be held back by complacency or fear. And Lord, we want to thank you for what you've done for us. That's what our hope is based in, what you, Jesus, did for us. And so we cling to that and we trust in it and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.